Uh, we are in our final session uh, on the uh, letter of Paul to Titus, chapter 3. So if you would open your scriptures to the letter of Paul to Titus, chapter 3, and I'll be reading from verses 1 through 11. The letter of Paul to Titus and to the church in Crete, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of our God. <clears throat> Remind the people to be subject to the rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility towards all men. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, that is, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a, diverse pers uh, a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Let us pray. Almighty God and Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you, Lord God, that in it are the instructions of life. And we pray, Lord God, that as we meditate upon your word, that you will give us clarity into your heart and mind and what you want to teach us. And indeed, let the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart always be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and redeemer. Amen. So we are in the final section of the uh, book of uh, Titus, or the letter of Titus. And uh, uh, the previous sections have had to deal with uh, internal matters, one about authority within the church, uh, structures that need to be put in place to help and guide. Uh, then uh, in the next section, we talked about how people within the church need to order their relationships uh, amongst one another in order to glorify God. And now we're talking about how people within the church need to uh, relate to those outside of the church. And so it talks about those uh, uh, who are within the church relating to authority structures and uh, municipal authorities and uh, those who are magistrates and wield a civil authority. And then we talk about those who we need to be obedient to, to them and how it is good uh, to slander no one, to be peaceable, to consider it and show true humility towards all men. So here we are expanding the scope from just beyond those who are within the ambit of faith to those who are now within our society and how we need to relate to them. Uh, but I think we'll miss the fact if we continuously just look at these aspects in isolation. I think there are two bookends, uh, what I call bookends, things that kind of keep the whole issue of 
the letter in context. And unfortunately, sometimes our chapter and verse divisions uh, don't do us much justice in terms of recognizing this because if you look at chapter 2 and verse 11 and following, you'll see this particular section, which I believe is one of the bookends that we will look at. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And here it is. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Twice this issue appears, this issue of hope. And here is the first bookend, the glorious hope or the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We wait for this blessed hope. And of course, now in this particular section that we've just read, we have a similar section where um, Paul writing says, through Jesus Christ our Savior, this is verse 7 or so, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. So here it is, the hope of eternal life. <coughs> so what I'd like to have you uh, focus on is these two bookends as the context in putting together all of the other pieces that we've been looking at, and especially in this particular passage, verse uh, chapter 3. One, we said that if you look at life in a truncated manner, you're going to miss the meaning of life and the outcomes that should come out of life. And so if you think that life is only about this life, which is birth and death, then you're going to miss the plot. And the decisions that you make and the conclusions that you come to about life will be distorted. <coughs> and what Paul is trying to say is that, look, if you look at uh, life in its totality, as God intended to look at life when he created, then you will begin to start properly parsing and contextualizing the decisions of life. <coughs> what do I mean? If you look throughout the letter of Titus to Titus, you'll notice that in multiple occasions, you will notice the word, it is good, do good, it is good, good. So many times, even as we just read that uh, passage, we saw that word appearing, it is good, it's good, do this, because that is good. And you'll notice that that notion of goodness comes from the very opening chapters of the book of Genesis, <coughs> when God himself creates all of that which he creates and says it is good, it is good, it is good. So the first point in terms of our understanding of these bookends is to understand what is the intention and purpose of God when he created. The intention and purposes of God for creation was not that it should lead to death and the ravages of sin and corruption. That was not God's intention. Obviously, it happens. And so the question that we constantly need to ask in the context of scripture, was that really the end of it all? Or did something else happen in terms of what God plans for his creation? And that is precisely the point. So God says that, look, yes, there is sin. Satan comes in. Evil comes in. And yes, there is a distortion of the creation event and the intention of God. But God is not frustrated. He is going to work out the ultimate purposes for which he created. And death was not a part of that equation. It was an aberration that comes in as a result of disobedience. It was not what he intended for his creation. It was there as a, a kind of warning sign. So don't go there. 
but unfortunately, we went there. <coughs> and so therefore, God says, let me contextualize again what is the good thing about this life. And the good thing about this life is the two bookends. That God does not treat death as the ultimate answer to the issues of life, but he tries to tell us that it is a passing point into the fullness of life, which is life eternal. That when you don't look at life in its entirety, in terms of the eternal aspects of our life, then we will, by definition, be looking at a truncated part of this whole equation and answer the questions of life with inappropriate conclusions. So here is the point that we have to focus on. The first point, when our Lord says he's coming again, it indicates to us that there is accountability in this life. <coughs> there is accountability in this life. What you have in this life up to the point of death or thereafter is going to be part and parcel of the great evaluation of what happens. And subsequent to that is what we would call eternity, the great inauguration of the final reign of God. And this we need to be careful about because uh, in this uh, notion that we use, terminology of uh, eternity, uh, as if it's just uh, day after day after day where uh, you know, we just go to heaven and we sing and we, as I constantly say, grow wings and harps and all of this sort of thing. It's not exactly what the scripture teaches about eternity. What scripture teaches about eternity is the notion of the coming of God in all of its fullness and the establishment of the kingdom of God in all of its fullness and the fulfillment of life in all of its fullness as God originally intended for his creation. That <coughs> is what eternal life is all about. It is, as the Old Testament believed, the fullness of life. The kingdom that comes and shows us what it means to live as the true humanity that God intended when he began his creation. What God intended when he created the trees and the heavens and the stars and the sun and the moon. And all in perfect harmony where there was no corrupting influence. When they all learned to sing together the praises of a God who is nourished, sustained and led all of creation and made all of creation. And in one voice, we sang the praises of him who alone was worthy to be praised. That was the intention of God's creative power and agency and intent. And now when we look at life apart from these bookends, we run into this issue of what we mean by hope. <coughs> Unfortunately, the English usage of the term hope uh, leads us to believe that it is kind of an equivocal type of a issue when you say I hope <coughs> to achieve something I hope I will get there I hope I have this it, it talks about a, a notion that yes it's your best efforts and yes you may not achieve it and yes you may get there and it's kind of an iffy situation <coughs> when the scriptures the New Testament and the New Old Testament use the word hope as it is translated for us the New Testament Elpis, it talks about the notion of a strong rope that can bear any load that is put on it. <coughs> That's what hope is, right? A strong assurance of the fact that any load put on this particular rope can bear the strain. That rope is not going to give up, is not going to break, is going to bear the load. <coughs> talks about a foundation, no matter what you put on it, no matter what the load factor that you put on is going to be able to bear the load. There's no question about it. So therefore, when we talk about hope in the scriptural sense, there is no ambiguity in terms of outcomes. 
it is the firm and full and solid assurance that what God says, he will deliver. And that the promises of God are absolutely infallible. <coughs> that is the hope and the assurance on which the New Testament and the Old Testament uses the word hope. So there it is, the hope <coughs> of the second coming. The hope that our Lord will come is accountability and hope in the fullness of life as he expected, which is the coming of the kingdom of God. <coughs> Excuse me. Now the question that arises is that when we look at our culture in which we live in and we look at hope and we ask ourselves, you know, what is the disconnect that we see between the biblical perception of this hope and what the world offers us as hope and where we begin to start losing the plot. Uh, Tim Keller in his particular sermon once talked about the four categories in which this world looks at hope. Uh, in terms of understanding, hey, when we look at the things that are out there and we look at what hope is, ultimately it's this issue of our desires being fulfilled, right? We have all kinds of desires, all of them in a sense God-given, because we are created in God's image, God put a stamp of uh, ownership on us, and so the things that we hope for and aspire to and desire are not things that are necessarily evil or out of his will and purposes for us. They are given to us. The question is, how are we going to fulfill them? And will, be will we be truly fulfilled in the way we set up the fulfillment equation? That is the issue. Good desires, good uh, things, objectives that we look for, God-given in the sense, love and family and positions and employment and jobs and relationships, or all of those, right? Things that God has put in us and we aspire to, and God says, they're good things. Because he created us and said, it is good. The question is, how are we going to parse this in terms of understanding how do we measure what the outcomes are in terms of appropriateness and what it is that we seek? Again, Tim gives this example. He says, take two people who are given the same job, in the same environment, in the same condition, in the same room, perhaps. Each of them is given two blocks of wood, and all they have to do is nail it together and Painted, <coughs> same color, same paint, same thing. <coughs> One of them is told, I'll give you 10,000 rupees for a month to do this. And the other person is told, I'll give you 10 crores of rupees for doing this. <coughs> now you can see what would happen to the person who was given 10,000 rupees to do the job and the person who was given 10 crores of rupees to do the same job. What do you think is going to be the attitude and the um, sort of response of the person who is getting 10,000 versus 10 crores. It gives a fundamentally different approach to the meaning and purpose for what is going on. And this is the point. If you begin to start looking at life from the point of death and saying that's all there is to life, and you look backwards, <coughs> it's going to be quite frustrating at times. If you look at it from the perspective of eternity and you say, well, this is what life is all about, in its completeness and its wholesomeness, and you begin to understand that the intention of God is to make right creation and to give you the fulfillment of all of your heart's desires in its appropriate context, it gives a different meaning to life. <coughs> and so this is what Paul is trying to drive at in terms of saying is that, look, if we set for us the fulfillment of desires, in the categories that we usually aspire to. We probably have these types of categories. One is <coughs> those of us who, in our very early stages of life, would probably say, look, <coughs> you know, when I get to the right college with the right uh, curriculum, 
with the right degree and then move on to the right job and get to the right uh, position and all of that. That's what fulfillment in life is all about. So you have some future points of fulfillment where we say, look, I'm striving at something, and when I achieve these goals that I set for myself, ah, <coughs> that is hope fulfilled. That's the assurance, you know, the desires. Um, hope is defined as desires that are fulfilled. <coughs> ah, that's when my desires that I have. All appropriate desires. Achievement, ambition, progress, education, jobs, all appropriate. Question is, <coughs> you set those out and say, ah, when I achieve them, when I achieve them, <coughs> I will become fulfilled. The goods will be delivered. I'll find true satisfaction. <coughs> Some will basically say, yes, I've come, perhaps in the middle of life, achieved many of those types of things, or not having achieved many of this, become frustrated because, hey, I aspire to have this particular job, and I aspire to have this type of an education, and I aspire to have this type of a lifestyle, and it's not happening, and so what happens, the goods haven't been delivered, and there's frustration. Your desires have been frustrated and you enter into a sense of hopelessness. <coughs> there are those who set those desires and those aspirations, all good ones, appropriate, and then seek after them. And after they've achieved them, wealth, happiness in terms of marriage perhaps, relationships, find that the goods are still not delivered in terms of the true aspirational aspects of fulfillment and satisfaction. And then what do they do? They look for more, more wealth. The guy who's made a million wants 10. The guy who lives in a fancy neighborhood wants to move up, and so on and so forth. We find that the things that we aspire to, when we achieve them, simply don't deliver the type of satisfaction that it gives or we thought it would give. And then the, there's those folks who just simply give up because all of life seems to be one chasing after the way. Nothing gets aspired, nothing gets fulfilled, and we get into despair. And then we find a huge index of folks who give it all up and say depression and suicide are the only ways out of this meaningless life. <coughs> so what are we saying is that this happens because we have changed the equation of meaning. We have taken God out of the equation and we have made ourselves as the center and the index of fulfillment. And this starts in the Garden of Eden, when God says, my plans, man says, my plans. I just don't believe your plans can deliver the goods. Satan says, hey, try this, I think it can deliver the goods. And so we begin to start replacing God's intention and purposes for us with intentions and purposes we think are going to deliver the goods because we are simply not convinced that God can give us the types of fulfillment in the things that we aspire for and we desire. And we go chasing after these things and try to fulfill them in ways that become contrary to the will and purposes of God. And so the fundamental premise that Paul is making to Timothy is that when you make yourself the center of hope and fulfillment, instead of making sure you are aligned to the will and purposes of God, how you fit into the will and purposes of God, then emerges a fundamental disconnect in terms of the way you satisfy life. 
again, if you look at what happens for those of us who begin to think that marital life is what it's all about. And when we get to the situation where we begin to think that it's about myself and we put ourselves at the center of this equation, what happens? We begin to start expecting of our spouse things that are inappropriate and inordinately difficult to fulfill for the spouse. The spouse will never be able to meet all of your desires and all of your expectations and all of the things that you put as out there as necessary for the fulfillment of a happy life for you. What happened on the other side either? So we begin to start burdening our relationships with inordinate expectations because we've moved God out of the center and we put ourselves there and says, how does this deliver the goods for me? And God says, you know what? Marriage should have taught you more about me, not about you. How do you learn about faithfulness in marriage? How do you learn about purity? How do you learn about righteousness and holiness? How do you learn about covenant faithfulness? And when you stand before God and you say, I do, but you stood before an almighty God and made an oath to him. And the next pretty face comes across and says, oh, And the point is saying is that we begin to start taking things and disaggregate them and put inappropriate context, then we begin to start asking ourselves, why hasn't it delivered the goods? And so through in our relationship with government. Do you think government should be good and righteous? Yes, they expect it to be. But if you put on government the means of the satisfaction and the fulfillment of your life, you're going to be disappointed. If you thought Caesar was going to be your savior and the one who delivered the goods, you're going to be disappointed. But yes, there is an appropriate relationship that is mandated between you and government. But don't expect Caesar to deliver the goods. And yes, you are called to live at peace and lack of animosity in terms of good relationships with one another. But if you think that that's going to deliver the goods and that's going to be the end all, you're going to be disappointed. What then? This is where the affirmation comes in. The affirmation comes in and says, yes, this life now has accountability because it's part of a continuum and a whole, and it will be evaluated in terms of that continuum. Why? Because in eternity, God says, here are the criteria for the kingdom of God. And what are those? The criteria of the kingdom of God begin to start challenging us on every aspect of accepted doctrine in terms of what gives us satisfaction. <coughs> You're looking for a king? You're looking for a messiah? Behold the man. Beaten. Bruised. Spat at. Looking for a king with a crown? The only crown you're going to see on this person is a crown of thorns. Looking for a king on a throne, lift it up. The only thing that's going to lift up this king is a cross. You're looking for somebody who's going to deliver the goods in terms of wealth and of prosperity. Your Messiah doesn't have the money to even pay his own taxes. 
And when asked, do you pay taxes to Caesar, has to borrow a denarius, which was the money paid for a day's labor to the most inexperienced man on the field. You want power? Crucified by the Romans who thought they exercised all the power in the world. You want armies to exercise power? A poor lonely woman crying for her only son or her eldest son. Abandoned? You want a king who has a retinue of soldiers and people? A lonely cry. My God. My God. Why hast thou forsaken me? We are looking at a totally countercultural revolution that must begin to reinforce the accepted notions of what it means to find satisfaction and fulfillment in life. It will be difficult because we must understand that we find our fulfillment only and only as we align with the purposes and plans of God for government, for society, for the church, for individual relationships. And very often we think that it is only if I am satisfied, if I am fulfilled, if I achieve what I need to achieve, that that will be the true indication and indicator of success and satisfaction. And God says, no. It is as you spend your life for somebody else. It is as you give up your rights so that somebody else's may be maintained. It is as you take care of the needy. It is as if you look at power and the exercise of power in very different ways, in a governance structure that is very different. Unless you begin to start understanding and learning those things, you will not understand what it means to live in the bookends of his second coming and eternity. The affirmation that this life has meaning in the life to come. And the life to come has implications as to how you live on this side of the second coming. And what God is saying is that you have tears, you have anguish, brokenness, broken marriages, broken relationships. That is not what I intended for creation. And if you think that that's the way it's all going to end, you will be sorely disappointed. Because God says, I have a different plan for my kingdom. Yes, on this side of the kingdom, we learn to live differently. So that on this side of the kingdom, we find true fulfillment and true harmony of what it meant to perhaps live like this so that we may know how to experience this life on this side of the second coming. And so, what do you give up truly? What do you give up? For Paul writes and says, you are heirs. You are heirs of eternal life. You know what that word means? It means that your name is on a will that has already been adjudicated and you have all of the rights that are enumerated in that will. 
your ears. You've been washed, it says. You've been lavished with the Holy Spirit. He says, you know, what is the assurance and the affirmation that all of this, you know, resurrection stuff and, you know, post-resurrection stuff and this new life and the kingdom, how does it all have meaning and add up when things seem to be so difficult and so different on this side? God says, you have the Holy Spirit with you? You have the Holy Spirit in you? It will affirm to you the fact that you're heirs of salvation. That God will deliver the outcomes. That he is not going to be frustrated. That his plans for creation will come to conclusion. So, be hopeful. Do not despair. Do not give up. On all manner of relationships. On all manner of interactions. On all manner of governance. These will find their ultimate context and fulfillment when the Lord establishes kingdom. And so here, in conclusion, he says, he says what? He says, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have these things may fully believe and trust in God. So, where are we in terms of all of that which we have so far gone through? All I'm suggesting to you that if we do not look at life in its completeness and its wholesomeness, and if we begin to just look at life in its compartmentalized sections of birth and death, and we do not understand the continuum of what it means to live in eternity, if you will, in the kingdom of God, when God establishes again his fullness, his recreation, his completeness in terms of relationships and health and wealth and all of those things that we aspired so much for, God says, in the life to come, you will have life and that more fully. So, as we go forward, let's ask ourselves, how will you live this life? Will you live this under the accountability where God says, yes, there is a second coming. You take, do take responsibility for governance. You do take responsibility for relationships. You do take uh, responsibility for the way you live in church and how you live under authority, and all of these things. But they are so that you put yourself in the plans of God and the purposes of God. It is not there for you in itself. And God says is that there is an affirmation that will come that one day, one day, you will stand before the presence of the Almighty King. And He will be the one who will wipe away every tear every misgiving, every frustration, everything that gets in the way of thinking God hasn't delivered. Paul says, you know, Satan's constantly going to come and tell you, you're not worth it. You failed so many times. That's exactly, he says, you were once like this. And Paul and, and, and Satan will constantly come and says, hey, let's you failed so many times. You, you, you've screwed up so many times. Look at your uh, marital life. It's a mess. Uh, look at your relational life. It's a mess. Uh, look at your uh, way that uh, you, know, you, you relate to governance and you've you, you know, gone after all the wrong causes and, 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 and everything else. And God says what? That's true. Because Satan is a great accuser of the brethren and he will constantly stand and accuse you. But please, respond and say, I am an heir. I am a child of the king. I have been invited 
into eternity. This life is not the end to the answers that I aspire to. God stands wel to welcome me on that side and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, that you give to us the meaning of life. That, uh, death is not uh, something that uh, puts a full stop to us, but it is a passing through to a fullness of life that we will come to understand. And that, Lord God, the promises are there. They are a sure foundation, assured by the presence of the Holy Spirit, lavishly laid out upon us, the assurance that your kingdom is a kingdom where your ultimate purposes for relationships and governance and government and all of those things that we so aspire for will find its true fulfillment. Teach us, Lord God, not to put so much of a burden on this life in terms of its aspirations so that we constantly get frustrated by the failure of the things of this world to deliver the goods. But help us to rely on the one, the only one, who can deliver fullness of life in all of its completeness. And now receive the benediction. Go in peace and love one another. Keep faith in all that you do. May the grace of our God sustain and, and uphold you. May the love of God surround you. Proclaim to all who will hear the Lord's coming again and keep faith in all that you do through the mercy and goodness of our Lord. Amen.